0: Let's now turn to Mark chapter 14, as we continue in our series in Mark. Mark chapter 14, we will be reading verses 1 through 11. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, They were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thanks be to God for his holy word this morning. If we were to survey the world, we would conclude that the world is divided between those who hate Jesus and those who love Jesus. We see this in our text this morning. It is now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover is the most important celebration for the Jews. It was to remember and celebrate Israel's deliverance from Egypt. The Passover is referring to how God struck Egypt with a final plague for not letting his people go, killing off all of the firstborn from the land. And the only way to be saved was by placing the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and the lintels of their houses, so the Lord would pass over them. And the feast of unleavened bread, that is bread without yeast, is to remember how their departure from Egypt was so sudden, they took bread for their journey before it was leavened. This feast begins on the evening of the Passover meal. Although the Passover is celebrated for an entire week, they would have celebrated the Passover meal on Thursday evening at that time. That is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right before Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. So here begins the plot as the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Uh, There are many reasons that have been given to us as to why they were seeking to kill Jesus. There were political reasons. Uh, The high priest Caiaphas would say, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish at the hands of the Romans. We are given a hint that they were upset because their authority was in jeopardy back in chapter 11, verse 28. They would later bring up false accusations that he wanted to destroy the temple himself. Then they would accuse him of blasphemy, which would be one accusation that would stick because he did indeed claim to be God. But we're not given the real heart motive as to why they wanted him dead. We can conclude they were just sin-sick, and hardened against God and His Word. They had become the nations in Psalm 2, who rage and plot in vain against the Lord and against His anointed. And they wanted to do it quickly and secretly. Why? They didn't want Him arrested during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They didn't want to make His capture a public Event because during the Passover, there would be from hundreds of thousands to two million pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. So they wanted to avoid all the uproar that would have been caused during the day because it would have been an illegitimate arrest. So they wait until they could bring him before the council of the Jewish leaders overnight. Now, in the coming days, this is often referred to as the passion of the Christ. And when we hear the word passion, we often think of a strong emotion or intense devotion. And Jesus definitely had the strong emotion of pain and agony at the hands of his enemies. But in devotion to his father and his people, he freely gave himself up. Now he is surrounded by enemies at this point, but this hatred for Jesus will be interrupted for a moment by an act of intense love and devotion, an act of passion coming from one of his disciples. And this act of worship would be remembered throughout church history, and it is to be a model of the church's worship today. Now, it says that he was in Bethany, a village east of Jerusalem, in the house of a man named Simon the leper. And when he was there, they prepared a dinner for him, as recorded in John chapter 12. Now, if you were to read the other Gospels, it says he was at three different houses. In Luke, it says that he was at the house of a Pharisee. In John, it says he was at the house of Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Uh, That is the same Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. So where is he? Uh, My own belief is that all three are referring to the same house. Simon was a leper who was healed, most likely by Jesus. He was healed because lepers weren't allowed by the Jews to throw dinner parties. And this leper was also a Pharisee, as recorded In Luke chapter 7. And he was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, Jesus was reclining at table. That is another way of saying he was laying on his side on some pillows beside a table and eating with his available hand. At this point, someone interrupted the dinner party. It was an unlikely disciple, it was a woman. John identifies her as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now this was a controversial moment. Over the centuries, uh, Judaism developed a low view of women, which was not taught in God's word. They weren't allowed to interrupt a dinner unless they were serving the food. So this would have already had its shock value. But why was she interrupting? What did she bring to this dinner party? It says she came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard. In John it says it was a pound of ointment it was, and it was an oily substance with an aroma sort of like perfume or a cologne. Uh, today's equivalent would be something like uh, essential oils that are very expensive as some of you would know. But back then, it was even more expensive, if you could imagine. Later, it is revealed that it was worth 300 denarii. Uh, Just to give you a picture of its value, one denarius was one day's wage for the common male laborer. So 300 denarii would be a year's wage. And women at that time did not make much money unless they came from a wealthy family or if they were married. Here there is no mention of a husband, so it was more likely that Mary wasn't married. So most likely this was either a costly family heirloom or this was donated for the sake of selling it and giving it to the poor. Whatever the case may be, what did she do with this ointment? In Luke and John, it says that she anointed his feet with the oil and kissed his feet. But here it says that she broke open the flask and poured the ointment over his head. Now, which is it? Did she pour it on his head or his feet? I say both. I believe she anointed his entire body With oil head to toe, beginning with his head. Now, this has biblical and theological significance. This would fulfill what Psalm 2 describes as the Jewish leaders who have become like the nations rage and plot against the Lord and against his anointed. Because every king in Israel who was anointed by the Holy Spirit was also anointed physically on the head. With oil as a sign and symbol of the spiritual anointing needed to lead God's people. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and now he is physically anointed as the priest king of Israel. He was the priest who would offer up the once for all sacrifice of his body, the true Passover lamb. So that the people of God would be passed over in the final judgment. And he was anointed as king. To lead his church by the Spirit once he was raised and ascended to his throne at the right hand of his Father. And she also anointed his feet out of true worship, devotion, and love for her Savior and King. And out of humility, knowing that in herself she was unworthy of him. And notice that this was the only physical anointing of Jesus recorded in the Gospels while he was alive. I think that this woman, Mary, holds a significant place in this story. Just like many women who have played significant roles in the unfolding story of the Bible. There's Eve, who was not only to be the first to eat of the forbidden fruit, but she was also the first recipient of the gospel. Sarah, who bore Isaac, an ancestor of Jesus. Ruth, a Gentile woman, who would be the great-grandmother of the great King David, another direct ancestor of Jesus. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, the prophet, who prepared the way of the Lord. And of course, Mary, the mother of our Lord. The list goes on and on. And now, from this point on, we will begin to see... The female disciples play a significant role in the story of the Gospel of Mark. Mary would anoint Jesus. Mark says many women were following him up to Jerusalem, all the way up to the cross, and be there at his death, while most of his disciples would flee. Women would follow the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, as he laid Jesus in his tomb then later the women would return with spices to anoint his body and to be the first to see him raised. At that time, they could have been arrested for that, but they went anyway. Because Mark here purposely records these events to show us that in Jesus, these women found their ultimate liberation from sin and from the oppressive legalism Of the Jewish leaders. They found person to person fellowship and communion with their Lord. And to show this, Jesus welcomed her. He didn't make a fuss when she interrupted the dinner. This was to show us that Jesus receives sinners of all types. He didn't come to sinners who were of status and importance. But he came to the most insignificant to the eyes of the world. And she was prepared to be embarrassed. And she was prepared to give up a year's wage worth of ointment to worship and honor Jesus. So to say that loving and worshiping Jesus leads to an easy and smooth life is a lie. There is always a cost to loving Jesus. You may lose all that you have, including status, money, possessions, or even loved ones for the sake of Jesus. You may even face the ridicule of hypocritical and legalistic Christians. Because after she anointed Jesus, there was an outrage among the disciples. That's why I believe he is speaking of here. Now, to further understand the outrage and the way they speak to her, we must understand how the Jews viewed women at that time. As I mentioned before, over the centuries, the Jews developed an unbiblical view of women. They had a saying to the effect that it is better that the law is burned than to be delivered to a woman. That it is better to have boys than girls. Sound familiar? Jewish men would publicly pray. We bless you, O God, that you have not made me a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. Sounds like the Pharisee and the tax collector when the Pharisee prays, Thank you, God, you didn't make me like him, or in this case, like her. To them, women were on the same level as animals. And they can't say that that they got this from the Bible. Actually, they got these ideas from mingling with the surrounding pagan nations of their day because it is a pagan view of women. Unfortunately, many have similar views of women today. Some teach that women are, in their essence, though they are made in the image of God, are inferior to men. Some speak as if a woman's chief end is found in marriage, housekeeping, bearing, and raising children. But what about single women? Doesn't the Bible leave room for single women? Paul repeatedly addresses this very thing and even goes so far as to address singleness as a gift. That is singleness without sexual relations, of course. Mary, if she was single, would have been viewed with scorn to say the least. But those who teach and believe such things have missed the point entirely. Because a woman's chief end is found in the same place as a man's chief end. And it is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This was the desire of Mary. See, Mary was satisfied with Jesus. Here her chief end was found in the worship of her Savior. And for the church preaching to a congregation of men and women and for husbands leading their wives, this is where we are responsible to lead everyone. And it is to the feet of Christ, not to a list of do's and don'ts. This is what we ought to demonstrate for our sons and daughters. And it is that we sit at the feet of Jesus Christ both to learn from Him and to worship Him. Because my question at this point is where is His disciples while Mary was anointing and worshiping her Savior? Listen to the outrage coming from a group of self-righteous disciples. And according to John's account, Judas Iscariot was their spokesman when he said, why was the ointment Wasted like that. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. And given to the poor. And John reveals that Judas said this. Not because he cared about the poor. But because he was a thief. And he was taking money out of those bags. And for those who say. Well that was just Judas who said and believed this. It says. And they. That would include the disciples. They scolded her. They threatened her. So they weren't just angry with her, but they were furious. And they used the poor as a leverage. What a shame. What a shame. Because anyone would agree, of course we are to serve the poor. But they were using the poor to take from her what she had in Jesus. Jesus. They wanted the ball back in their court so that they would seem more righteous than her. They were standing above her while she was worshiping at Jesus' feet. They tried to shame her devotion. But see, Jesus comes to her defense and he tells us what she was doing. She was doing what the disciples failed to do. Listen to how he responds. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. So he is saying a couple of things here. First, he reminds them that they will always have the poor with them. See, Christianity is not here to find a way to end poverty. Christianity is not here to solve all of the world's problems. The church's identity and mission are founded and centered around Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, not in moral principles. Yes, we are reminded like Paul to remember the poor, but we will always have poor people with us and among us in this fallen world. But what comes first for the Christian is Jesus. Love for the poor does not take priority over Jesus. It doesn't take priority over knowing and loving Jesus. Mary responded to his love for her by loving him and who he is. This would include defending the doctrines about Jesus and the Christian faith. The church is not a welfare state. It is a gathering of God's people who know and love the Savior to offer up divine spiritual worship to the Savior. So secondly, he is saying this is an issue of priorities. He said she did a beautiful thing to him. How? She put him first. Because he said, you will not always have me. That's the priority. The most important commandment is to love God first, then your neighbor. See, she had the eyes of faith. She recognized in him what they didn't recognize. She perceived that he was a unique person. And he was here to accomplish a unique work, even though she may have not known exactly what that work was at the time. First, he was a unique person. Her attention was where their attention should have been because he was to go away soon. She knew what she had in Jesus and she sought to love her God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now remember the difference between Mary and Martha. Martha was busy serving while Mary was sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching. So Martha said to Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing, Hey, I can use a little help here. Lord, do you not care that she's not helping me? She's just sitting there. Send her over. And he responded, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So she not only put Him first, but the reason why she put Him first was because she found her Savior. She found her Savior. Helping the poor and doing good works are good things, and God has called the church to do so, but these works will not save you, and it doesn't come first. We've all witnessed the self-righteousness of charity. Yes, it is possible to be self-righteous and selfish while at the same time generous. Some people believe that it is more important to give to the poor than to worship Jesus. Or to gather with the saints to worship Jesus. Then they look down at the church when we make the worship of Jesus a priority. Some people believe that their ticket to heaven is giving their money to the poor or to attend as many charity events as possible to make up for all of their sins. They presume that as long as they give their money to charity, God will be okay with all of their sinning and worshiping other gods. But folks, giving does not atone for sin. There is only one way to be saved from sin, and he was reclining at table in Simon's house. And if we love people more than Jesus, we have denied the Christian faith. If we give to the poor but we don't worship Jesus, it is all worthless. If social action or social activism takes priority over Jesus... It means nothing. And believe me, it will not transfer over to the kingdom of God. As Jesus says here, I'm paraphrasing again, the poor can wait. That sounds politically incorrect these days, doesn't it? Jay Gresson Machen, who was one of the founders of the OPC, if not the founder, says this, Even service no matter how efficient and how diligent it may be, cannot take the place of the deep affection of the heart for Jesus. And that true service is not a substitute for love, but the expression of love for Jesus. is it not Paul who said, If I give away all I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. If we were to take a survey of all the churches across the U.S. and ask what is the priority of their churches, what do you think we'll find? Would it be social programs to help the poor? Would it be efforts to transform the culture? Would it be worldly politics? Would it be 50 resolutions on how to be a better Christian? Or would it be Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Would it be the proclamation of the gospel of God's free grace in Christ? Would it be to sit and learn at Christ's feet? It seems we have been devolving into loving the gifts rather than the giver. We are more concerned with worldly outcomes than with Jesus Christ himself. See, what she had done in pouring this expensive nard on Jesus was not wrong. No matter how expensive it was. In fact, it was a display of how she put Jesus before her possessions, her family, and yes, even the poor. See, all of our service must flow out of genuine love for Jesus. Machen continues and says, all that she saw was Jesus and the whole rest of the world was forgotten. The rest of the world was forgotten in light of Jesus. Can we say in all honesty, that is what we do on a daily basis. But this is why this text is also filled with so much hope. Listen to Luke's account of the story as Jesus tells us a little bit more about what she did that expresses her devotion as he comes in defense of her against who we presume to be her father. Simon said to himself, and I'm paraphrasing again, if he only knew what kind of sinner she was. Now put yourself in Simon's thought. If he only knew what kind of sinner you were. Oh, but he does. He does. And that's the point here. Jesus receives and forgives sinners. Mary found her Savior who forgives her sins. And Jesus responded to Simon, who was a Pharisee, a very righteous man. Do you see this woman? but he who is forgiven little, loves little. She found forgiveness in Jesus and loved him as her savior. What she did was worth more than any other act of righteousness by all the so-called humanitarians of this world. Because she knew where her only hope was found. Secondly, she also saw that he was to accomplish a unique work. He was to be anointed as a priest king who was to offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice for her sins and ours. He says she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And the good news for us is that he did not remain buried. Remember he said to his disciples at that time you will not always have me. But now, since He was raised and ascended, we always have Him by His Spirit. And one day we will see Him and have Him to embrace Him for all eternity. Until then, let us not neglect the privilege of this communion we have with Him. Let us not neglect the priority of loving Christ and knowing Christ as we search for Him in the Scriptures. Jesus would go on to say, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This will be her memory. And that was her love for her Savior. Will this be our memory? When people come to our church, will they remember us by the way we love Jesus? Will people gather with us and say, There we found Jesus and we were sitting at his feet, learning and worshiping him? Mary put Jesus before serving others, while Judas was plotting to betray Jesus for some money, for possessions to serve himself. What would be his memory? To this day, we wouldn't name our sons Judas for the fear of being ridiculed, even though Judas is a common biblical name and nothing wrong with the name in itself. It's a Greek rendering of Judah. Isn't that ironic? But contrast that with the name and the memory of Mary, which would be one of devotion and love for the Savior. How many women do you know that that are named Mary? Mary. No pun intended. Will people look back at our lives and say he loved his Lord? Or she loved her Lord? Because this is how we are called to love him. We are called to give it all up for him, whatever the cost. See, her love cost her a year's wage. For some of us, it may cost us much more. It will cost us a life of sin, the sin we love most. But whatever the cost, let us remember the cost that Jesus counted before he went to the cross. It cost him much more than a pound of pure nard. It cost him his life for us. And praise God, some of the fruits of that is sitting right here in the pews this morning. Sitting at his feet, giving him the worship he so deserves. Amen.